It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on today's show... The futurist Peter Schwartz on scenario planning in the age of COVID-19. The old future that we were headed toward a few months ago is gone. And so the interesting question, therefore, is uh, what are the consequences here? What next after three of the world's biggest tech companies have taken a step back from facial recognition technology? If you quit the field, you cede it to whoever else comes along, which is definitely a problem. But first, if the lockdown restrictions where you live have at times seemed difficult to bear, then spare a thought for the crew of Polarstern, a research vessel currently plying the waters of the Arctic Ocean. The 90 scientists and sailors on board are more than 1,300 kilometers from the nearest human settlement. And thanks to extremely limited internet bandwidth, they enjoy less contact with the outside world than pretty much anyone else on the planet, including the astronauts in the International Space Station orbiting above them. The experiments this team are conducting, both above and below the polar ice, are part of a project called the Multidisciplinary Drifting Observatory for the Study of Arctic Climate, or MOSAIC for short. And they have the potential to reshape our understanding of climate change in the Arctic. We are lucky enough to book some valuable time on their satellite phone this week to hear about it. So we are uh, out in the Arctic sea ice at the moment. Matthew Shoup is a co-coordinator of Mosaic and a senior research scientist at the University of Colorado in Boulder. It's a kind of an overcast day, um, pretty gloomy out really, but it's actually really exciting here on the ship because we're all really uh, you know, anticipating our arrival at uh, the Mosaic ice flow. And who's involved in this expedition? It is a highly international project, an interdisciplinary project. So this means that you know, we have 20 different nations involved uh, with their scientists participating. And it's really an all-star team of scientists. It's a really amazing collection of people out here. Okay, so we've got this superhero team of scientists on an icebreaker. You're drifting in the Arctic. What's the mission that you're doing there? And how is it going? The mission here, Mosaic, is for... Um, it's a full year. We really want to be out here to understand the sea ice and how it evolves over the course of a whole annual cycle. And so that was the design from the beginning, to go and park in the sea ice and drift with that ice for a full year. Uh, and then, of course, the challenges uh, of the COVID-19 uh, epidemic have hit the whole world, and it affected a lot of our plans. So over the course of our year, we intended to bring people in and out of the ship every couple of months. Uh, and then with all these international travel restrictions going on, uh, it really made that process very difficult. And so it turns out that the, the best option for us to rotate people 
was in fact to bring the Polar Stern, our, our primary ship that was frozen in the ice, to bring that out to the ice edge uh, and rotate our personnel uh, via an exchange with a few other ships that met the Polar Stern near the ice edge. So it wasn't really part of the initial plan, but you know, we're, now we're back on course. We're you know headed back into the ice. I'm going to go reestablish our position there and kind of pick up the measurements. Uh, and in some cases, we've kept measurements going even while the ship was gone. We've got a, a number of installations that have remained on the ice and have continued to make measurements. Can you give us a general picture of what you guys are encountering out there in the Arctic? Is it changing more quickly than previously understood? The Arctic is changing very rapidly, and that, of course, is embodied uh, by the changing sea ice. And the sea ice is really the reason we're here. It's the, it's the focal point of Mosaic. Um, we already know the ice is thin and it's getting thinner. But what we found here with our project so far is, um, you know, it seems to be m- more breakable. The ice itself is more breakable than we anticipated. Um, and it was even thinner than we anticipated. And so this has actually led to a lot of challenges for us operationally uh, because we set up a lot of equipment on the ice. We operate there. Uh, we go do sampling out the, on the ice. Uh, and so the fact that this ice has been breaking up so much all around us has posed a challenge for the whole year so far. Um, you know, we get new cracks going through our camp on a fairly routine basis, and that, um, you know, we have to constantly be moving our different equipment around uh, and recovering equipment. Um, and so it, it's really interesting how this, this kind of new Arctic situation, this really dynamic and breakable ice pack, uh, is kind of affecting our ability to even measure that system. And for somebody who is self-isolating or sheltering in place who's not in the Arctic right now, what does this all mean? What is the implications for them? I think that, you know, many people understand that the Arctic sea ice is changing as part of the larger global transition that's happening right now, the, the larger global changes. Um, and that ice is really important to, to all of us in many ways. You know, it affects things locally within the Arctic, but then the declining Arctic sea ice also can affect us back home. It can affect the larger scale circulation of our global system, and it can affect our weather. Uh, and a lot of the details of how that plays out are very much unknown to us. And so we need to be here to study the processes that are happening here in the Arctic so that we can understand and better predict things like the weather uh, and things like uh, our, our climate system and where it's going to be going in the coming decades. It's phenomenal the amount of data they're coming up with. It's, it's very exciting. Annabelle Gillings is a filmmaker who was due to go on board the Polar Stern earlier this year, but had her trip canceled due to the pandemic. She's been following the developments remotely, speaking to the scientists, and reporting on it for The Economist. They're looking at the, the, the depth of the ice. They're looking at um, what creatures are in the sea. How many are there? What, what are they doing in winter? When do their populations start exploding again? And then when do the fish come in? And all these things relate to how much light is coming through the ice and the ice cover. So clearly a phenomenal amount of scientific work is going on here across disciplines. I wonder if there's a particular example you'd be willing to zoom in on to give us a sense of what one of these experiments looks like. So one of the experiments is Jennifer Hutchings, who's from Oregon State University. She's been using um, GPS buoys to to track where the ice is and, and how it moves. What she's been discovering is that it's much more dynamic than they had expected. 
what's what's traditionally expected at the Arctic is is that the ice there would consist of what's called multi-year ice or perennial ice, which is ice that builds up over several years, each winter getting another layer of of snow and ice, making it thicker, melting away a bit in the summer, but then coming back and having another layer each winter so that it it, it builds up. What what they're finding is there's much less of, of that than there has been in the past. And instead, there's a lot of what they call juvenile ice, which consists of ice that's just maybe one or, one or maybe two years old. That, that ice is, is less likely to last through the summer simply because it's going to be thinner, which means that the date at which the summer ice at the North Pole might vanish completely is worryingly coming closer. Again, her, her work suggests that's closer than had been thought. And do you get a sense when you talk to Jennifer and scientists like her on board the Polar Stern that they're shaken by the scale of the discoveries they're making here? How profound these changes seem to be? I think at the moment they're, they're quite, they've been quite concerned with um, how many layers of pairs of gloves they've got on <laughs> and whether the polar bears might be coming to, to nibble on them or nibble on their equipment, which polar bears seem to be quite prone to, to doing. So... To be honest, they're not so bogged down with the gravity of it, but I think what the scientists tend to do is to focus on their own area. I, th- I think scientists tend to be very humble, don't they? And they sort of try to avoid making grand pronouncements, but the implications of what they're finding are, are quite, quite grave. Our thanks to Matthew Shoup and Annabel Gillings. To read more on this story, try out a subscription. Just go to economist.com slash podcast offer and subscribe for an introductory offer. That's economist.com slash podcast offer. And the link is in the show notes. Next up, Peter Schwartz is an American innovator and author who specializes in future think and scenario planning. He has had a storied career. He co-founded the Global Business Network, a corporate strategy firm in 1996, and he is currently the Senior Vice President of Strategic Planning for the cloud software company Salesforce.com. He's even worked on the movie Minority Report, organizing what the fictional world should look like for Steven Spielberg. But previously before that, he worked at Royal Dutch Shell as the head of scenario planning. In other words, Peter has spent his career thinking about and planning for the future. But in his view, COVID-19 is a crisis unlike most others. This is actually the most forecast, anticipated crisis in modern history. You know, after SARS in the early 2000s, it was obvious that there was a vulnerability. I did studies for the Prime Minister of Singapore, which was hard hit, uh, back in 2010 that looked at the potential of a pandemic. This was what can be called a black elephant. It's not a black swan, it's a black elephant. That is that it was uh, very widely anticipated. It was the elephant in the room and massive denial by political leaders about it, like Donald Trump. There were places in the world that were reasonably well prepared and they moved quickly, mostly the ones who'd been hard hit by SARS, like Singapore uh, and Taiwan. So everybody wants to get better at reading trends and the patterns that point to the future. Let me ask, what exactly is scenario planning and how do you do it and how do you not do it? 
Look, the idea here is very straightforward. When you're in a moment of great uncertainty, like we are now, in fact, this is the greatest uncertainty I've ever experienced in my life, it's very hard to make a robust decision, uh, get it right in the face of that uncertainty. The odds of being wrong are very high. So the question, therefore, is to look at the different possible ways the world might turn out and then test your decision against those possibilities. The thing you want to make sure you don't do is to make a decision that would be fatal in a scenario that's quite plausible, that would actually be deadly. Secondly, you want to see, are there opportunities and possibilities that if you get the action right, lead to a better outcome over the long term? So it's a way of testing your decisions against possible futures and seeing which ones are the most robust and the best and where there are issues and where there are big risks, taking actions to mitigate those risks. That's what scenario planning is about, uh, making better decisions in the face of big uncertainty. Now, I have to ask, can you give us some examples from when you ran the scenario planning division at Shell? What sort of things did you get right? And what about things that you missed entirely? In in the mid uh, 80s, uh, we were looking at the future of various oil producing regions, as you might if you were uh, oil and gas, if you're Shell. And we were looking, asking ourselves the question, could things change in those places in fairly radical ways to open up possibilities for the international oil industry? One of the ones we looked at was Mexico, where, in fact, for a very long time, uh, really since the 1920s, the international industry had been banned and there was only a national oil company, Pemex, but there were rich opportunities. And the question was, was there any scenario for Mexico opening up. And indeed, we laid out three possible scenarios. And uh, in one of them, it opened up a bit and for uh, contractors and another went a bit farther and another, it barely did at all. Well, none of that happened. None of that happened. We spent a fair amount of money uh, trying to examine the politics and engage in exploration of how you might engage in Mexico. Nothing came of it. In contrast, uh, at roughly the same time, we also looked at the future of a place then called the Soviet Union, which was, of course, a major oil and gas producer and also our potential competitor for natural gas markets in Europe. So we took a look and said, was there any scenario for the international industry to be able to go into what was then the Soviet Union? And was there any scenario where Europe would take uh, lots of Russian uh, Soviet gas in competition with ours. And so we studied the Soviet Union in some depth, and we reached, right, this was 1984, uh, we reached the conclusion that they were facing a massive economic crisis and that there uh, was going to produce major change and that that crisis could lead to one of two possible scenarios, one of which we called the new Stalinism and the other we called the greening of Russia. Uh, and it would be what happened if a guy named Mikhail Gorbachev came to power and literally ended the Soviet Union by the early 90s. The Berlin Wall would fall by 1990 and we would be looking for oil and gas in Russia, no longer the Soviet Union. When everyone was talking evil empire, we saw the end of the Soviet Union. Now, we also had the other scenario, let me be clear. So we had two scenarios. And so we watched to see which one was beginning to unfold. And when Gorbachev came to power, we knew which scenario was underway. And we began to prepare for that era of uh, Russian gas exploration. Now, you've actually taken a look with a team of people, both at Salesforce and at Deloitte, about what the world might look like after the pandemic, predictions that you refer to as the next normal. Tell me more. This event we're going through is an event the scale of a major war. It is massive disruption of everything. The magnitude of the impact is very large. And therefore, the potential consequences, the world on the other side, is likely also to be very different as a result. 
And uh, suddenly we're on a new path. The old future that we were headed toward a few months ago is gone. And so the interesting question, therefore, is uh, what are the consequences here? And you can see some of them and imagine what some of them might be. The economic consequences, this is likely to take quite a long time to see meaningful recovery. We probably won't get back to the kind of levels of economic activity we had before the pandemic until 2021, 2022, maybe even 2023. So, you know, we're in for a a long slog. And what about the political outcomes of all this disruption? What kinds of scenarios have you mapped out there? The outcomes... Uh, you can think about in a variety of categories. Uh, let's think about geopolitics at the highest level, right? So that's one of the most interesting questions. Countries have had very, very different experiences here and played very different roles. There was a theory, I think, at the beginning of these, this, that maybe China might get this right and use this moment to create a moment of leadership and dominance in the world. It was obvious from the very beginning that the U.S. would not do that, that the U.S. was uh, obviously both introverted and turning against its involvement in the world. So what we've uh, now seen is exactly what we thought might happen. U.S. has pulled back. But China, as we thought in there, has not done well. Uh, China has tried to uh, play a dominant role, but has uh, not done a particularly good job in a variety of different ways, failed in its aid efforts, uh, played badly on the global stage in a variety of political ways. And so what we are actually tending toward right now, I think the biggest outcome is global anarchy. Uh, not a world with a new a shift in power from, say, the U.S. to the rising power of China. I doubt it. Uh, I think it's more likely to be a world where no one has a uh, effective dominant role. Okay, so how do you think that scenario planning can be used in the future to predict what the world after the pandemic is going to look like? This is a challenge a bit like we had when we were creating the world of Minority Report. Uh, Many people will have seen that film with Tom Cruise, directed by Spielberg, and we had to try and imagine what the world of Washington would be like, what the home would be like, what the travel would be like, transportation, the office, etc., And we showed that in many different contexts. And the truth is that if you understand uh, different plausible scenarios of uh, the evolution of the contest to economics and political and social conditions, and you dig in hard with a bit of rigor and imagination, and it's both, uh, it takes imagination uh, to see the kind of really big differences. But if you don't have kind of a rigorous sense of what is physically possible, technically doable, socially acceptable, etc., then you're going to have bad science fiction, Right. And so I think many organizations, schools, governments, businesses, religious organizations are all trying to do precisely that right now. Uh, Answer the question of what will their parishioners, their students, their customers, their employees want in that world post-pandemic. And what is the biggest shortcoming when one tries to look into a crystal ball and imagine the future? Well, I I think uh, the biggest shortcoming is bias. Every time I've gotten the future wrong, uh, it's because I was biased. I mean, the the best example was not long ago in uh, October of 2016. I said, no way Donald Trump could win the presidency. I so did not want that to happen uh, that I just could not even imagine it. You know, there's no doubt that that's the single biggest source of failure, your own biases. Peter, great to chat with you. Thank you very much. I predict that we will be talking again. Thank you. Coming up, the future of facial recognition. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Last week, IBM CEO Arvind Krishna wrote a letter to Congress on the issue of racial justice reform. Within it was a detail that caught the attention of the tech industry. He announced that his company was no longer going to offer, develop, or research facial recognition technology. And he asked for a national dialogue on whether law enforcement agencies should be able to use facial recognition at all. Days later, Amazon followed suit, announcing a one-year moratorium on the use of its recognition platform by police forces, although it will continue to provide the technology to other organizations. But there's an argument that the moves are motivated more by public relations than civil liberties. And it could have the converse effect of opening the door to other vendors who have less regard for the ethics around the technology's uses. There's been an undercurrent of worry bubbling along around facial recognition technology for at least a couple of years now. Tim Cross is the technology editor of The Economist. And I think with what's happened in the US recently, the, the protests, all the, uh, the arguments and debates about police tactics and so on, uh, I think maybe those, those concerns are kind of even more salient than they were. Tim, I wonder if these changes are being driven by the boards of these companies, or if in fact it's the employees who are sort of rising up and feeling that they're aghast and don't want to see this technology sold to law enforcement because it's, it's somewhat like a munition. Yeah, I think that's that's entirely possible. And, and tech is, is a bit unusual, I guess, in that the workers have a lot of power because, uh, you know, the skills they have, particularly the guys who, who sort of code these things, aren't that easy to replicate. So, you know, they, they have more power than the average worker bee does in a company. And as you said, we've we've seen them exercise that influence before. There is, of course, a third option, which is this is just a sort of uh, a, a PR play. And the plan is to quietly go back to selling this once all the furies die down. So we'll have to have to wait and see. Are there justifiable reasons to not want to sell this technology to police forces? Well, facial recognition is is kind of uh, weird, right? Because there are, it, it, it can be bad if it works and it can be bad if it doesn't. So it's one of the uh, most sort of visible uses of, of what we now call AI, which is you know machine learning, where you show uh, machines zillions of examples of, of a pattern and they, they learn to recognize it. And you know faces are as good a pattern as any other. But one of the problems with that approach, with that way of doing things is, you know, if you feed the machines bad data, you tend to get uh, bad outcomes. Google's had, you know, huge and very embarrassing problems with this. Back in 2015, uh, people found out that its facial recognition algorithms were sometimes misclassifying black people as gorillas, for instance. Uh, There was a study done by the National Institute of Science and Technology, I think, in the U.S., which found, which looked at you know dozens or I think hundreds even of facial recognition algorithms and found that on the whole they were generally less accurate when given black faces to classify than white ones, and we assume that the reason for this is that the data that gets fed to them has a disproportionate number of, of white faces in them, so the computers never really get as much practice at, at recognizing black people. Now, if you're using that to let someone into a building or to, uh, you know, let people through at the border with these electronic passport gates and so on, you know, that's 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 a, a serious problem. Um, there's also the question of, you know, well, what happens if it does work well? And what, what facial recognition, you know, lets you do is, is, is sort of automate this cognitive task that only humans could do 
uh, up until now. And, and you can use that for maybe sort of benign things or things that a lot of people would agree on, like policing the border. You can also use it, you can plug it into a, a CCTV network and basically have a citywide surveillance system of the kind that would have taken, you know, would have taken so many people to try and create that it would have been totally impractical before. You know, you would have needed hundreds of thousands of police officers armed with lists of suspects, like, you know, patrolling the streets looking for people. In theory, at least, you plug the software into a CCTV camera and it can ping you every time someone of interest wanders into its field of view. Now, I wonder what will be the concrete impact of preventing the rollout of this technology by the tech companies to police forces, considering that there's already a long line of firms who are very happy to sell the software to them. Well, this is the other thing. Yeah. So, so you know, AI, again, has a lot of mystique, but a lot of these algorithms these days are, are kind of off the shelf, or at least there's enough uh, expertise out there that you can, you can roll your own quite easily. So there are lots of companies uh, that aren't based in the US that sell this. You know, it, it's huge business in, in China. You know, this, this kind of AI and facial recognition stuff is, is one of the, the sort of key planks in this massive, you know, sort of techno police state that China's built in Xinjiang. So, you know, the genie is, is pretty far out of the bottle at this point. And I think, you know, have, having a few big tech companies say, OK, well, we won't provide this stuff uh, isn't going to make a huge amount of difference to how easy it is to get hold of necessarily. Given all that, I wonder if these big tech companies are making a mistake that, in fact, they actually should be more engaged with shaping how the technology is used rather than throwing their hands up and virtuously walking away only to allow other people with lesser values to march right in. What do you think, Tim? Am I wrong? No, I think I think there's something to be said for that. I mean, if you quit the field, you cede it to whoever else comes along, which is definitely a problem. You know, the, the, the tech companies understand this technology maybe better than lawmakers do. I also think, though, this is a theme that you see kind of over and over in the whole technology sector of, of where, where we're content to let the sector self-regulate, where we want, you know, politicians. And after all, that's their job. You know, we elect these guys to make laws and to make these kind of difficult decisions and say, you know, this is what you can do and this is what you can't do. And this is how we want to uh, sort of shape society. I think I'm going to be a sort of soggy centrist liberal and say I think probably the best approach is some kind of mixed one where, you know, ultimately, I don't think this is the kind of thing we should be leaving to uh, sort of industry self-regulation. But at the same time, I think, you know, as you say, quitting the field entirely probably just just leaves it open for um, for other people to, to come in. And, you know, if you don't speak up, if you don't get involved in trying to decide what the regulations should be, then that doesn't mean they won't happen. It just means that somebody else will do it instead. Tim, thank you very much. Thanks, Ken. And that's all for this episode of Babbage. Thank you for listening. And while you're with us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.